Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast, where my guest this week is someone who hasn't played on the tour for almost 20 years now, but is still very much a figure on it through his television work. It's Neil Folds. Neil, welcome along. Hi, Michael. Great to have you here. And I want to go back to the start of your professional career. Very hard to qualify for the Crucible in your first year as a pro, but you managed it. First round, you're playing Alex Higgins, who at the time was not just one of the biggest snooker stars, but one of the biggest sporting stars and celebrities in all of Britain, and you beat him. Now, what kind of a situation was that to be thrust into at such a young age? No, it was brilliant. I mean, that that match really did help my career a lot at the start. You say it's not; it was not easy to qualify for the Crucible, but it's there was a little group of players like myself, you know, John Parra, and it's almost like the class of '92, but but not quite. We're not we weren't quite at that level clearly, but we were better than a lot of the people on the tour. I mean, my qualifying for the Crucible was not that uh, difficult, really. My last match, for instance, was against Jim Meadowcroft, um, and I led seven-two going into the evening session, and I thought that you know Jim would come out pumped in the evening. Well, he turned up late for the evening session, so he's even <laughs> further behind when we started. So. Um, you know, qualifying wasn't as difficult as all that then, like it is now. But then playing Alex was daunting. But of course, I'd known Alex and some of the other guys for, since I was a small kid, uh, because my dad was involved in snooker as a, as a professional and formerly an amateur player. So I knew Alex, you know, reasonably well. He remembers me as the kid who used to follow his dad round, and um, maybe it was a different kind of dynamic then. But um, yeah, I mean, it was a, a massive win for me at the time. I don't think I felt nervous or anything in that last frame which was going out live and, and then David Ike came in and, and, and sort of um, presented the show and said what a great shock that was. But um, yeah, that was the thing that got me going clearly and it made me sort of known to some members of the public. People who weren't around at that time have no concept of just what a massive yeah. thing it was in British culture. I'm guessing Alex Higgins playing live on TV in the World Championship, there might have been 10 million people watching that in those days very possibly yes um, it was a strange one because we played uh, sessions that you don't see anymore we played the, the night session uh, which was 5-4 uh, I think to Alex um, and then we came out the very next morning so those two sessions were quite close together when my lifestyle was a little cleaner than Alex's in those <laughs> days I, I didn't go to the bar or anything I'm not saying he did but the chances were that I, I'd have had a longer sleep than him so it was a quite a very quick turnaround and maybe that helped me because I didn't have a lot of time you know, to think about the, the match. It was very close overnight anyway. And uh, yeah, great, great for me. I, I still remember it very vividly, actually. I was a little bit embarrassed to celebrate at the end. You know, like, like you'd see now, players would sort of embrace the crowd. And I suppose if could ever regret, um, a lot of them were supporting Alex, but they were good to me. And I just walked off all bashfully, you know. Well, your progress continued very quickly yeah. after that. After three mm. years, you were in the top 16. Your first ranking event as a top 16 player, you went and won it. Now, at that time... Ranking events had only been around a few years. There weren't many of them, and Steve Davis won most of them. So for a youngster, 23 years of age, just in the top 16, to come and win a big event like that, that was massive news as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Steve would have been the person, clearly if had I had to beat Steve, that would have made it even sweeter. But I think Eugene Hughes managed to do for Steve in that event. Mm. And um, yeah, I mean, I played Cliff again. It was a three-session final. The, uh, the ITV um, final session was... You know, peak viewing on a Sunday afternoon it was a as you say a big deal and um, I managed to beat Cliff who you know I, someone I thought was going to be a virtually impossible task beating someone so so granite as him but as I say I think I went into it all just not I didn't feel under any pressure I think that came later on in my career when I, when I had already won things when you start to see the world differently but I, I was on a bit of a sort of um, 
uh, a, a journey that was just great fun. And uh, and I guess what goes with winning is that players look at you differently and think, well, this guy's quite good now. And half of them are beaten before they started. And then further down the line, they're gunning for you. But at that point, you know, I, I had a good season that season. Well, to say the least of it, you were the man of the moment after winning that BCE International at Stoke. You then got to within a frame of getting to the Grand Prix final. Yeah. And then the third ranking event of the season was the UK. You got to the final up against Steve Davis, who dominated that event in those days. Over four sessions, though, he taught you a bit of a lesson. I think I played my best ever snooker in that UK Championship in the early rounds. You know, I beat Jimmy, I beat Cliff again. John Parrott easily in the semi-final. So I was really playing well. Beating Steve over two days was going to be tough. I did that thing that I would always say that you should never do now. I changed my tip after the first day against Steve. I mean, what was I thinking of? Clearly, it had gone a bit hard. But when I see someone do that now, I think, why? Just play. You know, you've been playing well enough. And that's not a reason why I lost. Because afterwards, I remember saying to Steve, I changed my tip, you know. And he said, you did well at the time not to make that an issue in the press conference. Well, you, listen, you were the best player. You completely strangled me over two days. And that's how long the UK Championship was lasting then. Um but I think that was where I played some of my best snooker that, that, that couple of weeks. You also played incredibly well, I remember, in the British yeah. Open. And uh, Jimmy just overtook you in the last session of the final there. But by getting to that final, it meant that going into the World Championship, famously, you had got more ranking points than any other player that season, which was really hard to do when Steve was around. So talk to me about that 1987 World Championship, because a lot of people thought this could be Neil's time. He could be world champion here. What did you think? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was sort of had a few off the table things going on by then. You know, my life had changed. Um, you know, domestically I had issues, and I don't really think I went into it with any real hope, actually. But again, it just came down to the fact that I, you know, was able to beat the likes of you know. I think I played Dennis. I played uh, John Virgo before that, and then I played Mike Hallett. So I was playing some good players. And I fancied that I could beat Joe Johnson, I must say. You know, I thought that having won it the year before, that would be a good effort for him to get to the semi-finals. But the third session of that semi-final, um, he, I won the first frame with a century. And I, didn't, I don't think I won any more frames after That's that. That's right, yeah. And um, I, I sort of collapsed a little bit, to be honest. And I, wasn't, I, was, I was tired. I wasn't feeling great at the time. I had a few health issues. And um, I was struggling to get up in the morning. All of these things now, again, if I heard that from someone, I think, come on, shake yourself up, you know. Um, but um, I, I just, I felt like I'd run out of petrol a little bit. And you look, I'd love to have been in the final playing Steve, but I, I just wonder, did I have anything left? A bit of the old John Parrott slow puncture story. Mm. You know? That's what it might have felt like. So in the back of my mind, I felt like my game, had, had, had just the edge had gone off it a little bit. Um, maybe that's just as a result of what happened towards the end of that match. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously I lost to Joe and, and it was a repeat final of the year before. That British Open I was talking about where you played so well, you were only 23, it was your third ranking final that season. It seems incredible, Neil, that that turned out mm. to be your last ranking final. How did that happen? Not sure. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think I think a few things happened to me uh, at that time. I wouldn't go into, like to go into them all, sure. but... but um, where I sort of, sort of, I don't know, I didn't quite come out of that season with the positive slant that I should have done because there was one or two things um, being said about me and also I had lots of things in my private life that weren't right. So I took a long break from the game. I didn't play at all in the summer. And, um, and by then my health was, was, was fine. But I didn't have a very good season. I was world number three, but I wasn't really playing to that level. Um, so I end up in, over the next couple of years dropping down the rankings a lot 
But then I think that I had a bit of a second coming where I ended up back in the top eight for a couple of years, back in the well into, into the sixteen. And I, I think, think you got as high as number five in your sort of second yeah. era. Yeah, and I think I was a better player then, a mm. more round, a more rounded player. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of a little bit introverted. I didn't really wasn't that outgoing. I wasn't as good with the media as I should have been because I, you know, had one or two issues uh, with a couple of things that had happened. But um, so, you know, that's all my bad, really. I should have uh, been a little bit more outward thinking, but but I was still enjoying my game, you know, and. You know, I had a pretty good career, but it could have gone a bit longer. You think about now how the game is. You know, when I retired at age 39, I felt that um, that would be it. But And it obviously it was for me, but I dropped off the tour. I didn't really think I wanted to get back on. But now that, that proved to be a... You don't have to be finished at 39 years of age, do you? Clearly not. I mean, if, if anything, that's quite young in snooker now, isn't it? To be... You know, you look at the likes of you know, Mark and, and, and Sean uh, Murphy... That they're kind of around that age, or just a bit older perhaps, and they're playing their best snooker. So maybe the dynamics have all changed in that regard. It was just the one ranking title, mm. and yeah. as we've said, you didn't get to any more ranking finals after that amazing season you had. But let's not talk it down, because you still did get to some big finals, the Irish Masters, I remember, yeah. and the Scottish Masters, which you won. So how would you sum up the rest of your career after that golden spell that you had? Probably underachieved. I mean, I think I did my best when, I, when my expectations were lower because I went into the um, the Scottish Masters not really thinking that I was going to win that week, to be honest. I hadn't been playing great. Um, but I'd actually, strangely enough, this is kind of nothing to do with it, but I'd played in that um, pop black, which was time frame, oh, and you which was it. on, and yeah. it, it made me play quicker. And, I th- mm. and that was just before we went up um, to Motherwell for the Scottish. Um so I thought, you know, why don't I just play like that now? So I just played as if I had no care uh, and, and won the tournament, you know. And I had some other success. I mean, I won in Dubai the first time they ever played there. I played Steve, beat him with a century in the in the final frame. And that was just on the back of having lost a qualifier the night before. Didn't even want to go to Dubai. Why would I not want to go there? Um, it's strange. Sometimes I found my best came when there was no expectation. The more I looked forward to something, perhaps the worse I did. When your retirement came, you seem to be speaking differently about it now, but at the time I remember you made some comments that suggested you were quite happy to be finished at that point, that maybe you'd had enough of it. Mm. The queue went away and it was never coming out again because um, I'd started doing a, a little bit of broadcasting, um, not not snooker or a little bit of snooker at that stage for Sky, um, but I, I, fell out in love of the, I fell out of love with the game a little bit because all, all the political wranglings affected me and my dad, obviously, sure. quite badly. I thought he was yeah, not not very well treated for what was an unpaid job as on the board then, you know. And it's not an unpaid job now, um, w- without going into all that. But you know, it was a massive distraction. So you know, when there was all the problems in the game, which we which we don't really want to go into now. Of course, it's the game's moved on quite beautifully. I'm glad it has. But you know, it it wasn't always a, a very. It was a slightly toxic atmosphere at venues at times. My game was going downhill. My dad was still involved, but there was um, bullets flying around, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so why would I particularly want to play the game at that stage? I wasn't playing all that great. So I didn't want to be out of snooker because I love the game. And I, and I think I like the game immeasurably more now than I did then. Mm-hmm. You started doing the TV, as you say, long before you'd finished playing. So how did it happen? Was it something you'd always thought I'd like to try that? Or was it the usual story of someone just thinking Neil might be good and approaching you? 
Yeah, no, that's the second of those. I mean, I, I, as I say, I'd, I'd done some broadcasting work outside of Snook a little bit. Um, that but, was sort of in the betting shops, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah not yeah. high grade, but good fun and, and good sure. experience working with people that, that knew the job. Um, but I guess um, Rory Hopkins, uh, who was at Sky, he was the, the, um, the top man at Sky. He, I got a phone call to go to Scotland and... His, he had somebody who, who rang me, so we know you've done all this before, so you'll be fine. I think, well, actually, I had never done it before. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you don't miss out on a chance like that. So I did the Scottish Open and other stuff with Sky uh, all the way until they stopped doing snooker, which, of course, had the Premier League for a good mm-hmm. few years, which I enjoyed working on a Thursday night. Um, for various reasons, they pulled the plug on that. I think they'd had enough of snooker, quite honestly, which is a shame. But... Um, so then, you know, I've been with the BBC and more recently, really enjoyable times with, with, with Eurosport and ITV. You know, this is something that I've enjoyed more and more. Um, and I know I'm very lucky to be doing it, you know, because when that comes up on the bottom of the screen, former world number three, it's not, it doesn't sound quite like seven times world champion, does it? But uh, oh, it's still pretty good. And when you consider number one <laughs> and two were Steve and Jimmy, That's that was right. pretty good going. The point is, I hope that I still follow the game closely. And if I didn't, then I wouldn't expect um, to have any um, work in the job, really, because I think that you've got to follow the game. And I mean, when new players come along, I want to see what they're like. You know, I want to watch them. I want to be, be up to date with the modern game. I guess it's a bit like if you like music. Sometimes some people just give up on music 25 years ago, as if to say, "Well, you know, I, I used to think Oasis were good or something like that, and now nothing can top that." But really, in snooker, you've got to be with the times, haven't you? Mm. You know, you've got to be with the times. You can't always harp back on, well, not only my own career, which I try not to do apart from in this podcast, but, um, you know, how the game used to be. I mean, it's nice if you can have a nostalgic chat with someone of an age and talk about players of 30 years ago, but the general public who are watching snooker, a few of them exist, but in the main, they want to hear about the new exciting talents in the game. And it's, it's my job to know who these guys are. And it's great watching you work with the likes of Dave and Phil on ITV and... Dave and uh, the other Phil on Eurosport yeah. and Clive when he was still around as well. That's the best way, isn't it? To have someone from a journalistic background and someone from a playing background. When it works well, it's fantastic. Well, exactly, because actually with Clive, um, I mean, he was the person I worked with an awful lot at Sky. Um, you know, it, it, it's safe to say that, um, you know, we, we hadn't had a great relationship then through, through the politics of the game, but we put that aside. And Clive ended up becoming a good friend you know he still is I haven't spoken to him a little while I know that he's not been so well but um, we managed to put those little things behind us and professionally and in the end I, I really enjoyed his company you know and my, my dad who um, turned up at one of the Premier League events and Clive was there and they, they'd had a few more than a few issues actually um, my dad shook his hand all sorted I thought that was good all round you know so so it was great to work with Clive and um yeah, I mean, he he's set the standard, really. I mean, with, with Clive, he didn't say an awful lot, but what he said means a lot. And he'd want you to compliment what he said, and that, that was a great learning curve for me. I always felt, Neil, that it said a lot about you that you were able to continue working with Clive, even yeah. when he was so publicly at loggerheads with your dad. Yeah. And, of course, you've always been close to your dad, and you played him in that ranking event that you won, <laughs> and oh, it must have been horrible for you. Well, strangely, that was a tournament which my dad got ranking points in because it was a different system then, because yeah. he'd beaten Bill Werbenek in that uh, tournament. And um, it's a bit unlucky that he played me, because you know, I don't think he really was all that... Whether he could have beaten me or not, I don't know, but I don't think he wanted to, because he knew that I had a chance of going a long way in the event. You know, and he didn't. 
Um, so yeah, it was over in a flash. And I played him again in the English Open, um, which was non-ranking. It was just for English players. The back English then. professional. English professional. Sorry, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Um, and my mother came along, uh, enjoyed it. You know, and she never used to come to snooker, mm. but um, it was more of an enjoyable experience because it wasn't a, a very big event. Sixteen points the difference, thirteen points on the table. Uh, Cliff hanging his head a little there. He hasn't really done himself justice in this final. And that's it. Neil Folds is the champion, beating Cliff Thorburn by twelve frames to nine. Inevitably, with a career as long as yours, a few quirky things happen. And one story you've told a number of times, which I really love, and I'm sure you didn't enjoy it at the time, was when you had the referee at the UK qualifiers who insisted that you had turned up late for the match yeah. when you hadn't. I hadn't. No, it was... Um, yeah, I was playing Danny Fowler um, in a qualifier for the UK, and it was just... I can't remember exactly when it was, but I was emerging as a good player, but I had to play the qualifier. And um, I, think, um, I think I was 5-3 up going into the evening session walked into the venue about 10 past seven and the ref I won't name the referee he's a bit of a bit of a shame he's not on the tour anymore because he in fact we didn't see much of him after this match but um yeah he he, he said I'd dock two frames and then there was all kinds of a problem over it. he'd got he'd got the times wrong and um we had to get um somebody from world snooker out of sort of phone them out of hours you know and get some kind of a ruling and after about an hour and a half they took the two frames off but by then I was um Raging. I lost the match. As in they restored the two frames that had been wrongly taken Eventually. Off. Yeah. But the, ref, the referee actually, he, he wanted, even though he was wrong, he said, I can't go back on these two frames I've awarded. Um, and that's um, because I've given them in error, but I've given them. So yeah, you can imagine it wasn't a particularly um, uh, um, nice conversation I was having with the referee. Sure. You know, I, I like to respect people in, in um, authority, but... Yeah, it was one of those things. I'd lost, I lost the match anyway. It doesn't matter now, but uh, at the time I was, to say, in, enraged. But he's not really doing it justice. We'll talk a bit more about your life now and one or two other things in a moment. But before that, we're going to come to the quick fire round. Okay. Favorite song? Well, well, you know, um, that's not an easy one for me. Something, something by Talk Talk from the Color of Spring. Okay. Living in another world, maybe something like that. Best holiday destination you've ever been to? Well, I went to um, I, th I went to Barbados to watch Test cricket, which would be my idea holiday. I did that. Um, strangely enough, that was when Stuart Bingham won the world title. It worked up until the quarterfinals. Went off with some friends to Barbados, and um, I didn't watch the last few days at the Crucible. But I had a great time watching Test cricket. Favorite TV show? Well, uh, right now I'm going to say Canal Boat Diaries, uh, which is something on BBC Four. And I, I, again, I'm, I'm going to go with something right now. I'm mean, a massive Partridge fan, yeah. massive fan of Father Ted. But what I want to watch now is a thing on, on BBC4 called Canal Boat Tire, uh, Diaries with a, a chap who lives on a, on a long boat and goes around all the canals in the UK. It's brilliant. Favourite movie? I mean, probably Goodfellas. I'm, I'm not really a, a film connoisseur. Uh, I don't see it. I, I enjoyed Belfast when I saw it recently. Brilliant movie, yeah. Brilliant movie. But um, I'm going to go old school on that one and, and, and say Goodfellas. And one thing you'd change about the game? Well, change about the game? Um, I've had, there's a few things in the past I've thought about. I can't quite get my head around what they are now. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, 
well, let's just keep it simple. Let's just hope that we can get back and play more globally because, you know, I know that's not really what you meant. You wanted something more mechanics of the game maybe, but I think right now, until we get back to China and other parts, um, you know, I just don't want the game to stagnate. Don't want it to go back to being almost exclusively a British thing. No. Maybe it was in the past. That's it, yeah. We mentioned music there and you picked out (laughs) Talk Talk and I know why that was hard for you because I know what a big music fan you are. The thing that really impresses me about you, Neil, you're 60 next year and yet you always seem seem to be very much in touch with what's going on, what the new albums are, you're always talking about them. So how big a part of your life Mm. has music been? I love music, always. I think think it's all about sometimes going to... um, um, uh, play snooker matches all around the country or on fl- uh, flights, you, you know, you spend a lot of time. I mean, I've, I've given you a very retro, um, you know, band there in Talk Talk, but sure. but I will tell you that um, Lana Del Rey's album, it's got a swear word in the title, I won't tell you the name of it. Mm. I think that's one of the best things I've ever heard. It's only three years old. And it's yeah. fantastic. That's what, um, the, the, this, the first word is Norman, third word is Rockwell. I know. The middle yeah, word yeah, I'm not yeah. going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, have you been to see much live music over the years? Have you been someone who goes to concerts? Oh, yeah. And uh, what stands out for you? I, I, went, I saw Neutral Milk Hotel uh, three times, but I saw them at the Roundhouse at Camden. That was fantastic. Uh, I've seen John Grant many times, a singer I absolutely love. Um, and uh, I've seen The National, lots of great bands. Uh, Car Seat Headrest, another band I love. All kinds of things. I, I actually went with the power to see Paul McCartney at the, um, the O2 a few years ago. Didn't expect to be going I mean but just the way how can you not go and see one of the Beatles and it was just brilliant yeah. have you been to any gigs recently have you been since things opened up again after Covid sadly not yeah so a lot of people haven't got back into the habit no I will be though I've got a few things in my mind I want to see a singer called Alex Cameron from Australia who I love and I know he's, he's touring again early next year I think he's brilliant your other big love, as you alluded to, there is cricket. So, did you ever play when you were younger? Yeah, oh yeah, I played many many years of cricket. But Barry, when I was with him, told me I was not allowed to play cricket, but I just still did without him knowing. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've played cricket for thirty years. Not very good. Opening batsman who could only hit the ball on one side of the wicket, you know, not got many shots. But during that time, I played some charity cricket for um, the Bunburys who are like a, the the equivalent of the Lord Taverners and I met people like Viv Richards um, Joel Garner all these fantastic cricketers I adored seeing great other sports people like Ian Wright played with him what a lovely guy mm. so I, I've met almost too many people to name from all different walks of life luckily for me just because I played snooker I was so privileged to meet these guys and play cricket with them the greatest ever player debate, Neil, mm. I know you've spoken about this and you're very firmly on the side of Ronnie O'Sullivan, mm. as most people are now, I think, at this stage. One thing I would say about that that I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, I always say that I think people have forgotten how good Stephen Hendry actually was and that even if he's not up there with Ronnie in the all-time standing, some people have maybe let it slip from their memory just how strong a player he was, maybe over a shorter period of time, but still absolutely magnificent. Well, that's it. I'm, I'm not going to forget that because I was on the wrong end of it enough times. Mm-hmm. I didn't think there'd ever be another Hendry. I mean, it's almost like you can never say that there won't be another O'Sullivan. I doubt it, but you can't. You can never say never. You don't know what's going to emerge in anything, do you? So um, let's just say that. But I think the only thing with, you know, with Stephen... And he won so much over a shortish period of time. You know, when you think about it, over a period of about 10, 15 years, he won everything and he was completely dominant in the game. When he lost, it was an event. But really, they always said, yeah, but you know, if Ronnie's better, where are the numbers? Where are the numbers? You know, until he wins 
all these world titles and all the all the these other UK and Masters titles. Where are these numbers? Well, the numbers are there now, aren't they? And it's over a longer um, span. I think that you know, much longer span. I think that with um, Ronnie, everyone thought he was going to be a bit of an underachiever. Uh, in the game, we knew what talent he had. It was obvious, really, that he was something special, and he still is. And I think this world title he just most recently won, in some ways, was his greatest achievement because it, it, the intensity that he took out to the table. Sometimes it spilled over. I didn't agree with everything that happened in that final, and with with the, the referee Olivier Martial, mm. but the burning intensity which he showed to win again. He, made, he turned it into quite a hostile environment out there. And listen, you're not going to a tea party, are you? You're going out to win. And he did it, and he did it brilliantly. And I think that could be his greatest ever achievement. He's the greatest player of all time. Let's talk a bit about the future of the game, Neil. Things, as you alluded to there, have come a long way over the last 10 years or so. Where do you think we'll be in another five or 10 years? Well, I mean, I think we're seeing... I mean, look, this has been something... You know, sound a bit like a broken record, but we are seeing more and more top Asian players coming through, more so than players from, from the UK. Now, this has been a slow thing to take place. It's not happened overnight, clearly. But now, we're seeing more and more players coming through. You know, we've got a UK champion who is from China. We had a Masters champion who was from China in Yanbing Tao. And there's a real group of players making it big now. So we are going to see more and more Chinese players. When the game reopens, you can... Can you think of the adulation that players are going to, you know, Ding Junhui as great as he is. You don't hear so much of him now as a player. When Chinese snooker opens up again, we're going to see a, a lot of respect and, um, you know, people are going to want to see Zhao Jintong play and, and some of the others. So I think we're going to see more and more Chinese talent, Asian talent. What we'd like to do is, is broaden that a little bit, you know, see a little bit more from Europe, from Germany and all of that. But um, I'm hoping the game will be in good shape. You know, I do. I do think that this is that we're at a turning point now, where we have to come out of COVID and 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 take the game forward again, like it was before. Because you know, we hit. We've been playing tournaments in the UK, and there's only so much of, a, of an appetite for that in in crowds. You know, I'm not sure we're seeing as many spectators at these UK events as we might do. I remember Embassy hosting a lunch during the World Championship when they were sponsoring us in 2000. Now, bear in mind, that's 22 years ago. And our mutual friend, Phil Yates, was chatting to someone at it and said, oh, yeah, these top players will still be the top players in five years' time. And that's Ronnie, John and Mark he was talking about who are still top players now. I don't see any reason why they can't still be winning tournaments into their 50s. What do you think? Well, I think that's right. I mean, the one that surprised me in a way most has been Mark Williams because, you know, before he won his third world title, I, I genuinely thought that his game had gone backwards a little bit. Maybe his interest had, had waned, but that world title he won was, he played brilliantly. He had, you know, a method that he was using, the sight right method. It worked for him. And with Mark, you know, he, he still goes to sleep for a little while, doesn't he? And he's going to re-emerge and win other things. With John and Ronnie, you know, they're just legendary players and, and John just keeps coming out he's had a lot of reversals over the last year year or so as John titles that he should have won that he hasn't done but with Ronnie I mean he's the one player that you really wouldn't want to put a, a time frame on how long he could go on for because he's he's such a prolific talent that he's probably never going to be anything but a brilliant snooker player is he and finally, Neil, as I said, you're going to be 60 next year. But yeah. you look at Clive, he kept going into his 80s. <laughs> so I think you're going to be around the scene for a long time yet. I sense you still have the enthusiasm for it as much as ever. Well, I, I hope I hope so. And from my point of view, as long as everyone's still pleased to have me here, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. 
no, listen, we're delighted to have you still as part of the game, Neil. And I have great memories of you being the big rising star <laughs> when I started to watch all those years ago. You were the man on the rise and you gave us some great memories on the table. And thanks for sharing them with us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, it's the exciting Welsh prospect, Dylan Emery, now on the tour after winning the European Under-21 Championship. You know, it's a talk out on it for a reason. You know, the game over in Europe has been springing on leaps and bounds over the last few years. And I, I think the first time I played in it, I was 15 maybe. And once or twice since I lost in like quarterfinals, semifinals. And I think it was round five in Q school. So I was, I'd knocked on the door a couple of times and then out there something just seemed to click. But it was That was a weird story as well. I was practising the week before and I just... I was struggling really bad. I had a problem with my tip on my cue and I was just really struggling, even in practice, practicing solo. And then I went out there and it just seemed to click. You know, it's just, obviously I came close a couple of times and then that happened and it's just weird how we're all plans out what's meant to be is meant to be. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget our bonus content, the 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds every Tuesday. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. And goodbye.